couple of Bible men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. You just wave to them and get their attention. They'll be happy to get one into your hands. And if you don't own a Bible, then you can consider that one yours and feel free to take it home and make good use of it. Sunday morning, we're studying First Peter together, and we come to chapter 4, and this morning we'll be studying the first six verses. First Peter chapter 4, verse 1, the word of the Lord. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin that he no longer should live the rest of his life in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for your word, and we just never cease to be in awe of the fact that we're able to open this up, learn, Lord, what you want us to learn, and then what your word does in our lives. And we pray for a great work of your Holy Spirit now in our worship of you as we study your word. Give us understanding of how all of this applies to our own lives, and we give you our lives just asking you to cut off whatever needs to be cut off, rearrange whatever needs to be rearranged, build in, Lord, and whatever needs to be built in, bring perspective where we've lost perspective. And so just powerfully use your word in our lives today. Thank you so much for the joy of being able to study it and to be able to study it together. And we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Throughout this letter, the uh, Apostle Peter has written about how to navigate unjust persecution that is being directed against us by, uh, in this fallen world, uh, significantly by those that don't know the Lord yet, and uh, by the, the unsaved world. And it certainly is uh, a necessary warning about that kind of persecution that comes from this kind of anonymous big world that, that we live in. And uh, most persecution that comes against us as individuals, it, Christians, it originates in that kind of kind of a big anonymous or a small kind of anonymous uh, persecution against us. We don't uh, have a, a deep personal relationship with the person or sometimes it's, it can be a government entity or a representative of that entity. But we haven't invested our lives in a relationship with people that sometimes bring this kind of persecution into our lives. This was the 
the kind of the situation of Christians that Peter is writing to, the persecution that was coming against them, kind of the big general persecution, it was being meted out against them by a Roman Caesar by the name of Nero. And he was using the Roman Empire and all of the apparatus of that to uh, bring persecution against Christians. These Christians did not have a relationship, personal relationship or otherwise, with Nero. And so Nero himself was doing the persecution. He used kind of the government structure to do that and then able to use human representatives within that government structure or to use citizens to persecute Christians who were and they're alive and well today who uh, live in any particular empire or country who uh, demand a loyalty to their country, whether their country is right or whether it's wrong and they're to, it's to be agreed with uh, no matter what. And so that makes up a significant part of the persecution that these Christians were facing and that we will face as well. But there's another persecution, the persecution that he addresses here this morning that Christians must endure. And it is a persecution that is much more painful emotionally and uh, and takes a far greater toll upon us uh, mentally, if not physically. And that is the persecution that can rise against us uh, as Christians simply because we've become Christians by people that we have known and we have loved by sometimes uh, family members or those who we thought were our friends or our friends for life, our former partners in sin, partners in crime, uh, people that we have a long history with, people that we love and people that we care about. And it can be a very, very deep wound and a great feeling of betrayal when these people kind of throw us overboard and begin to slander us for the simple reason that we have chosen to put our faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and chosen to make him the Lord of our lives and to follow him for the remainder of this life and all of the life to come. So you've got this big kind of gray persecution over here, which is like a dull ache. And then you've got this very personal persecution where we these relationships where we thought this is a relationship I'm going to have for life. Nothing could ever change this relationship. Nothing could ever change my acceptance of this person or their acceptance of me. And then all of a sudden, for the simple reason that we become a Christian, uh, all of that changes. And so how do we deal uh, with that when we encounter it? And that's what this passage, Peter tells us how to set successfully navigate that kind of persecution, persecution that comes from the most difficult and uh, heartbreaking source of all for some of us. This is a, what Peter is addressing here this morning is something that virtually every Christian will face. Uh, some, most often we will face this in, in kind of a, a shock treatment when it comes into our lives almost immediately upon becoming a Christian. And then sometimes after we've walked with the Lord for years and years and years and sometimes decades, this is a little bit of a distant memory uh, for us because a lot gets shaken out in those early days and weeks and months and years of our Christian life in terms of in this in this vein. 
And so for some of us, we may look back on it and say, this is this is not like a current major uh, thing that's happening in my life at the moment. But just to realize that for many people, this is exactly what they're in the middle of. But how to navigate this? And Peter tells us several things that are important to do that. And he tells us in the first half of verse one that we are to have the same mind towards suffering that Jesus had. In other words, we're to have the same mind, we're to have the same mental attitude, the same mental outlook towards suffering that Jesus had. Well, that raises the question, what was his mental attitude or his outlook towards suffering? And Peter told us in chapter 3, verse 17, that it is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And the point that Peter is making there is that no one in this world escapes suffering. Whether you follow God or you don't follow God, nobody escapes suffering in this world. Everyone suffers in this fallen world. If you do what is right, if you choose God and you choose to follow and do and be good as a result, then in all likelihood you're going to become the object of persecution by men. But if you then choose to live for the flesh or live for sin, then ultimately you will face the judgment of God, which Peter develops a little more in verses 5 and 6. So given the fact that everyone is going to suffer, so to speak, for whatever side of things we choose to be on, it's better to suffer for doing good, for living a life in the will and the purposes of God. We must not expect that we will be treated by this world any differently than it treated Jesus 2,000 years ago. The same kind of person that opposed Jesus during the 33 and a half years of his life, most specifically the three and a half years of his public ministry, they dogged him. From one place to the next to the next, they persecuted him. They tried to trap him. They opposed everything he did. They opposed everything that he taught. That particular kind of person in the human condition did not cease to exist at the moment of Jesus' crucifixion or 2,000 years ago. They continued to exist this very, you know, into this very same a day in history, they exist today, where they were threatened by the life, by the teaching of Jesus. They were, their power was threatened, their wealth was threatened, their stature and position was threatened by Jesus at 2,000 years ago. And to remedy it was a persecution of Jesus and ultimately the crucifixion of Jesus, all of which got overruled for his own purposes. But there's that same thing that happens today where a person becomes a Christian. And when we do, the person of the Holy Spirit comes into our lives. He is also called the spirit of Christ in the Bible. So Jesus himself and the person of the Holy Spirit comes into our lives. And that person that opposed that type of person who's threatened by the life of Jesus existing 2000 years ago exists even today and is no less threatened by Jesus in us than they are by Jesus living in this world 2,000 years ago. 
They're just as threatened as it relates to how they see what his teaching, if it gets traction uh, and, and his life begins to permeate a lot of lives, the threat that it is to their power, it is to their, their wealth, their reputation, and, and so forth. And so this kind of person is alive and well even today. And we need to arm ourselves, Peter says, with the same mind, the same thinking that Jesus had toward persecution. The word translated arm yourself refers, uh, referred to a soldier putting on armor. So with the same kind of determination and care with which a soldier puts on his armor, Peter is telling us Christians are to adopt Jesus's attitude toward persecution and uh, this absolute unswerving uh, resolve to do God's will. Now, you would think that a person who does good and lives for the Lord would be universally loved and respected in this fallen world. But it isn't uh, so. Sometimes people think, boy, if Jesus came back today, we treat him a lot more, di- a lot more differently because we're much more civilized. Yeah, we take him out by a sniper or whatever kind of way it would do. As if mankind has changed. Mankind has not changed. Technology has changed. Methodology has changed. Education has changed, but the heart of man has not changed. It's the same uh, hand that's been dealt all the way through human history in, in terms of the people that exist. And so we think, oh, no, we would treat him entirely differently today. And it isn't isn't so. And Jesus was open about it. It's one of the things I like about I had a friend when I was in high school, my best friend, and he was a part of a, a false religious system. And um, and this false religious system used to do all kinds of things to attract young people into their deal. And uh, so they'd have all kinds of dances and this and that and all kinds of different things. And the idea was they get you in there, get you hooked, begin an indoctrination. And then all somewhere down the line, they would tell you what you had gotten yourself into kind of after the uh, fact of the matter. Jesus never did that. He was absolutely upfront with people about what he was calling us to do, what we were getting in, into, what we were in for by becoming his followers. In fact, in John chapter 15, he spoke to the disciples and said, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And the more we become like Christ, the worse this kind of persecution can become. We can tend to think again that if I am loving toward my fellow man and I'm obedient to God, that the whole world's going to like me and they're going to love me. And so it becomes a surprise then when people rise up upon me just simply announcing the news that I've become a Christian to rise up and begin to bitterly oppose me and begin to bitterly uh, attack you and I. Now, somebody may listen to all of this in the comfort of that seat that you're sitting in or the comfort of their own Christian life and say, Pastor, I think you're overstating the case here related to all of this. That's not my experience at all. I suffer absolutely no persecution for my faith, no rejection, no isolation related to my faith. I don't know what you're talking about. 
And I'll tell you why a person might think that. And most often it's because that person hasn't gotten out of their foxhole to face any live fire and the spiritual warfare that is going on all around them. And they are depending upon everybody else to get out of their foxhole, to get into the fight, to hold the line and the spiritual battle that we're involved in. And because they don't get up out of the foxhole and take any uh, live ammunition being directed toward them, they assume that that's everyone else's portion in the body of Christ when that isn't the case at, at all. And it usually means that somebody is hiding their Christian faith or they're compromising God's word in their daily life or they're remaining silent in conversations and and keeping God's truth to themselves in order not to offend other people. Because all you really have to do to become uh, encounter the persecution that Jesus encountered is to just lovingly and gently and meekly but firmly be like him in the, as he was in the different situations in life. Just take a strong vocal stand against the sins of a culture or a nation or the sins of the day. Take a strong vocal stand against abortion. Take a vocal stand against sexual immorality, heterosexual or homosexual. Take a vocal stand against casual divorce in the body of Christ. Expose the error and the hypocrisy of false religion as Jesus did. Call on people to repent of their sin, as Jesus did. Declare that there's only one way to be saved, as Jesus did. Declare that there's only one true and living God, the God of the Bible, as Jesus did. Declare that there's only one way to know that God, only one way of salvation and relationship with God, as Jesus did. And as we make those kind of stands in living the life of Christ, then we get ready for the fur to fly, even among old friends and even among family members, and get ready to be attacked by those who are heavily invested in those sins. If there is no opposition in a person's life, a Christian's life, it might mean that we're not as much like Jesus as we think we are. Sometimes we think that we're like Jesus because we're going to grow a beard, grow our hair a little longer, and then get a robe and kind of just put this smile on our face and it's just perennially there. And we've got to buy a lamb to put over our shoulders to carry around everywhere we go. And that somehow this becomes, even in the minds of Christians, what pulls up in the old computer screen in our mind of what it means to be like Christ. When it's not only so one-dimensional, it's not even one-dimensional. It's nothing like him at all. And what it really means to be like him in, in the world. And so there is this, this recognition that as we, the life of Christ is lived through us, 
then we're going to face the same persecution that he did. And Peter lets us know that. And so that is the mental expectation that I need to bring to my Christian life. Because any other expectation that I'm going to become a Christian and everybody's going to be thrilled with this is a false expectation and it's going to set me up to become very shocked and surprised when persecution and rejection uh, does occur. Think about the Apostle Paul and very late in his life, he's just probably, you know, weeks or months away from being martyred for his faith by the time he wrote Second Timothy to his young protege by the name of, of Timothy. So he's going to die a martyr's death for simply obeying God and fulfilling the will of God for his life. Chapter 3, verse 17, just like Jesus did and just like Peter calls on us to do. And he's going to be beheaded, probably the greatest saint in the history of the church, beheaded for just that, those simple reasons in his, in his life. So your words get kind of few, you know, your last words are pretty important words. And so he doesn't want Tim- Timothy to head out into what he's going to head out into now absent the Apostle Paul with any wrong ideas about how he's going to be received by people. And so Paul wrote to Timothy in Second Timothy, chapter three, and he said, but you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith. Long-suffering, love, perseverance. Well, so far, so good. Surely that turns into winning awards and being handed uh, trophies by service clubs in any community that you're going to belong to. But it doesn't. He goes on and he says, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. And then he comes to it. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And we kind of look at you pull the Bible up and you say, well, listen, if I look at it from this angle, it's like an exclusion, except for Damien Kyle. All right, it's right there. I love this Bible. And what Peter is saying is just, and Paul is saying, is just what Jesus said, and that is, it's just part of the deal. It's just the way that it goes. Now, what made all of this worth it to Jesus? Again, chapter 3, verse 17. The blessing and the joy and the privilege of being faithful to God the Father and God the Father's will for his life. Jesus said to the disciples, he said, my food, what sustains me, what energizes me, what gets me through the day, what gets me through life? My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And so it is with us. Any loss of friendships in the world because of our relationship with God, though it's painful, is more than made up for by the richness of our relationship uh, with God. Being right with God, being right in the eyes of God, that is the greatest blessing of all. And Jesus endured the rejection and the persecution of many in order to provide mankind with forgiveness and salvation. He knew that while many would reject him, Many others would listen 
and be saved. So he recognized, had the mental attitude here that we're to have. That if I'm going to be someone in terms of how I live and speak a certain way in terms of what comes out of my mouth, that delivers hope and it delivers good news and a gospel to the lost that many will then glom on to, listen to, and make it their own and become Christians as well. In order to have a relationship with that group of people, in order to reach that group of people effectively, it means that I'm going to be the kind of person that is going to be put off by this other group of people, and it is going to mean that I'm going to incur persecution because of it. We're not going to be able to make friends of both groups of people. One group is either going to be supreme in my mind in terms of the concern of my life and the other secondary or the other is going to be supreme in the other secondary. And because you and I are saved sinners, because for 2000 years, some bloodline, some heritage, some Christians read Fox's book of martyrs. But how many Christians went through Only God knows, and few know, to be able to have this gospel, to have believed it for themselves, delivered to them by one generation, they then faithful to carry it to the next generation, so someone then would present the gospel to me so that I could then hear it and my whole life and eternity be changed. There is no way... I can live with myself and say, that went on for 2,000 years, it comes to me, I get to partake of this and all of the life that I do as a Christian, and now I'm going to clam up and that whole thing stops with me and doesn't move through me to others. I'm not going to do it. The power of the Holy Spirit. And so we look at it and we say, all right, I'm getting shunned or I'm getting ignored. I'm being spoken evil of or rejected or persecuted by this other group of people. But all of that, you can put all of that on one side and it doesn't mean anything to us because of the spirit of God inside of us. And what's important to him doesn't mean anything in comparison to being able to go to people who are once in sinful condition that we were in, and hear that there is a God who loves them and there is a way out, and then to to deliver that message to them. And so that was a part of what was in Jesus' thinking, the mind that he had, how he processed that rejection and that persecution, and it is a part of our thinking as well. Everyone has a right to hear. That's supreme. And if people reject me or they reject us or persecute us because we believe that everyone has a right to hear the truth about salvation, even as we did, then so be it. The second thing that he tells us here in the latter half of verse one and also in verse two is that we are to remind ourselves that this kind of persecution by this kind of person is actually a very good sign spiritually in our lives. Now, Peter is not talking about Christians who are um, make themselves obnoxious or they make themselves uh, purposely weird for the purpose of being rejected by other people. 
It's talking, it's just talking about as we live the life of, of Christ, the persecution that comes our way for simply living the life that Jesus has called us to. That when that persecution comes our way, it's actually a healthy sign. Do you know there are kooky people in the body of Christ? There are so many kooky people in the body of Christ. There's no, not me. I'm sure people probably think the same of me. But I mean, there are some real wacky, crazy people in the body of Christ. And it makes me just love the Lord all the more for what he keeps track of on a daily basis. But there are some people who they read about persecution and this kind of thing. And they're not content with the persecution that will come their way for just simply being obedient to God and what he's called us to do. Um, they're going to bring it on themselves. And so they, they can sometimes become very rude, very obnoxious. They begin to take on kind of weird idiosyncrasies uh, and way of talking and acting and dressing, all kinds of different things. And they begin to suffer persecution. It's in a, of a great comfort to them. But what they're being persecuted for is just being a kook, just being crazy or their own thing that they've come up with. that's appalling to other people, even other Christians it has nothing to do. doesn't look like Christ at all. So I need to say that uh, because people get confused in their mind and say, all right, there's not enough of this happening. And so rather than go deeper in Christ and be more like him, then they start to try to take these kind of things on. We're talking again about persecution that comes to our lives for simply living the life that Jesus has called us to. And what Peter is saying in verses, latter half of verse 1 and 2, is that when we're persecuted for righteousness' sake, for living a right life in the sight of God, it usually is because we're no longer living a willful, deliberate, ongoing life of sin. It means that we have made a break from a life of sin. And not only that, but now we stand against it. And so when you watch a person become a Christian and they go from being very eager followers of sin to now being willing to suffer for choosing righteousness over sin, that is the mark of a changed life. You look at that kind of a person, you realize they have made a clean break with their old life and, and their past life of sin. And it is a good thing that has happened to them. Now, how we react to persecution reveals a, a lot about us. How we react to anything in life is a great revelation of what is inside of us. The same event in life can produce two very, very opposite reactions in uh, different people, depending on the condition of their heart. When Jesus was crucified at Calvary, he wasn't crucified alone. He was the only son of God who was crucified on that day. But he was crucified with two thieves, one on the right hand and one on the left hand. And that same event produced two very different responses in them. But one thief railed on Jesus for not saving himself and saving them as well. 
The other thief, he looks at the same environment, the same event, the same Jesus on the cross, the same blood, the spit, the, the crown of thorns, the whole thing, the nails. And he saw the tragedy and the injustice of the events toward Jesus. And he repented of his sins and he put his faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of his sins. They're both looking at the same exact event in real time. And yet it produced two entirely different responses, exposing the inward reality of the two men who were involved. The same persecution that causes one person to cease to follow Jesus, as in the parable of the soils, when Jesus spoke about the seed that went into the hard soil and it it, 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 in stony ground and it, the stony ground rather, and it sprouted up very quickly. But when things got hot and persecution and difficulty arose, then it wilted away. The same persecution that causes one person to cease to follow Jesus causes another one to draw even closer to Jesus. And it's the reaction that reveals what's in the heart. It's been explained this way, and I really like it a lot. So you have a cup of coffee. Let's go down the street to Starbucks. And they've got all of those holiday drinks this time of the year. It's fabulous. Not a big coffee drinker myself. I drink tea. It only makes me slightly better than you coffee drinkers. But I do like the, I, they got those peppermint drinks. You know, basically, just get rid of all the coffee and give me something else. The peppermint drinks. I do like coffee, by the way. And then my favorite is the eggnog lattes. Oh, man. And I'm glad that they don't serve them all year long. Just a very short window of time. They're too rich to have all year long. That's my, that's my, my feeling on the issue. So you get yourself an eggnog latte. You don't put a lid on it. You get into your vehicle and you head out the parking lot and you got the dip right there before you get on to Pellendale and you hit that dip and all of a sudden whoosh, whoosh, and that eggnog latte comes right out on your lap because of the bump. The bump did not put the eggnog latte in the cup. The bump only revealed what was already in the cup. And that's what bumps in life do. They don't put our reaction, they don't put that in there. They just reveal what was already in there. And the reaction to persecution, the bump of persecution, which is what Peter is speaking about here, reveals when it's a, a, a proper one, it per forces us to go deeper in the Lord, reveals a very strong, genuine commitment to Christ and the holy living and the life of that kind of Christian. They won't compromise in order to bring a stop to the persecution, no matter what kind of suffering they endure. And that kind of Christian, Peter tells us, has died to their own will. That's not what their life is about anymore, their own will. But now they live for the will of God to be accomplished in and through their lives, whatever that might mean. And so they no longer live the rest of their time in the flesh for the less of men, but like Jesus, they live now to do the will of God. And Peter tells us that's to be the commitment that every Christian 
paths to God's will for our lives, that obeying his word, not avoiding hardship, that's the most important motivation for how we live. Now, third, in verse three, Peter tells us a wonderful thing, all kind of encapsulated in a single word, the word enough. I like that word in verse three. I think you to notice in verse two that phrase no longer. You could just you could you you don't have to circle them. You won't be in any trouble if you don't, but they're worth circling. No longer, verse two, and then in verse three, enough. And so Peter says, We have spent enough of our past lifetime committed to sin. And he's and when he says this in the original language, he's being very, very firm. Almost like a dad. He, he, he isn't coming like gently encouraging us to kind of consider if maybe perhaps if we wouldn't mind. And could we possibly consider and give some thought to the fact that maybe we have invested enough of our life in sin already before coming to Christ? He tells us bluntly that our past experience of sin in life is fully sufficient for us. He's saying enough already with the investing of even another moment in sin. And they had invested enough time there, enough time to show that there was nothing in a life of sin that was worth uh, living for. And so this is what he tells us, that it's all over for us. It's not an option. There is no going back. To try to appease people or to calm people down or to lessen the rejection, to lessen the persecution, it's enough. We cannot go back into the former life, into the former sin, hang out the same places with the same people doing the same thing to bring an end to this persecution. He says it's enough. Too much and enough of your life has already been invested in that. And and. And we are to look at it and say enough, even if it costs us personal uh, relationships, cannot go back into it in order to maintain a relationship that demands compromise of us in order to do so. Now, when I was a, a boy, uh, the dad in our house, and it was, he was characteristic of most dads that I knew of my friends in those days, that when he looked up from the newspaper and you were in the house or looked up from anything where he was interrupted by whatever we were doing and he looked over and he said, enough, that meant enough, no more. I mean, you just didn't, you, you just didn't cross dads in those days. I don't know what it's like today, but you just didn't do it. Enough was enough. And, and so that was the end of discussion. It's settled. This is a thing of the past. Enough meant enough. And that's kind of the attitude that Peter comes in in kind of a loving, spiritual, fatherly way and says enough. And then he explains ceasing from sin in a little more detail. And he gives examples of what we are to be done with that we're no longer to invest our lives in. So these are the things we're to make a complete break with in, in our lives. And as he describes there in verse three, some of these sins that lets us know this was kind of the normal life of the Gentile 2000 years ago in the Roman Empire. This is what people were being saved out of. And it's very much like what people are being saved out of uh, today. He mentions lewdness, which means living without any moral restraint sexually. It's to be 
not only sexually immoral, but to be shameless about it, to be uh, open about it, to be almost proud uh, uh, about it. And of course, today we see that there's hardly any uh, negative stigma or any shame associated with being a sexually immoral person in our culture. So this is what people are being saved out just like 2000 years ago. He talks about lust and Lust means a strong desire for something. And, of course, he's referring here the context of sexual lust, which was the great sin uh, of the Gentile world throughout time, both then and now. So talking about sexual sins and 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 so this and we see this in our own culture, the nurturing of lust in our culture. We could talk about pornography. We could talk about television. We could talk about advertising. We could talk about any direction we want to go in where it is a, a 24 hour a day attempt to stimulate lust within the population of our nation in order to then uh, bring people into bondage and then make money off of it in some way. So you always follow the money on all of this. And then he and, and so they work hard to make lust the obsession of life. And they're quite effective, uh, candidly. And then he talked about drunkenness. So uh, coming under the influence of alcohol or uh, drugs. And just just today, it's the same as 2000 years ago, where uh, alcohol plays such a big part in uh, in the lust and in the sexual immorality. He talks about revelries, which was kind of wild, rowdy uh, partying where people would come together just to just for mischief, just uh, testosterone, just to fight, just to, uh, you know, for violence, that kind of thing. Nothing new under the sun. Drinking parties again. Parties where drinking and drugs are central to it. And then abominable idolatries. Well, what could be worse than idolatries? Got abominable idolatries. So idolatry is the worship of any created thing. And since God is the only thing or person that isn't created, it's the worship of anything other than God. That's idolatry. And so here is abominable idolatry. And so it's it's talking about idolatry, which in those days was uh, uh, most of the idolatrous practices had a lot of drinking involved and a lot of sexual immorality involved because the idols that they were following. These these are the idols. It's all in their minds. These idols didn't have any basis in reality. This was just this was just a physical representation of what somebody thought up in their mind. So you put a group of men together that don't know the Lord. You say, hey, come up with a God that should be a lot of fun to, to, to worship. They're going to come up with a God who likes to drink a lot, likes to have a lot of sex. And so that's why in, these gods had come forth and the, in the, in the Greek gods and the Roman gods were very immoral gods and angry gods. And they were simply the representation of men's flesh. And so the worship of these gods were in, involved the drunkenness and the sexual sin. And some of this apparently was so bad that even an unsaved kind of uh, decent citizen of Rome would have been appalled by what they were engaged in. So a lot of these Christians came to the Lord out of these kind of backgrounds, as many uh, do today. And Peter told them and us that the remaining years of our lives belong to God and they should be given to him. Now, notice in verse 14, he tells us that we're to be willing to be considered strange by others for having left 
all that behind. <laughs> that seems strange to have lived it. But we need to be willing to be considered strange by others for having left all that behind in order to live a holy Christ-like life. Now, we don't become strange by our own definitions. We don't need to do that. Just as we live a holy, godly life, we need to be ready for the fact that we are going to be viewed as the strange ones in this world as a result. Isn't it amazing that the person who leaves the kind of sin that's described there in verse 3 to live a holy, Christ-like life, that that's the person that's thought of as strange by other people. This says a lot, really, when you stop and you think about it. This says a lot. A person can completely destroy their body, destroy their family, go from one addiction to another. They can waste all of their money, destroy their health, and no one thinks it's strange at all because it's become so common within the culture. We've become so used to it within the culture. But become a true, living, walking, talking, born-again Christian, and as a result, to become a ten times better person than you ever were, as a result, and people will not only think that we are the strange ones, but that we will speak evil of us for having done so. You would think that people would be thrilled that God had taken us out of that life in verse 3 and completely changed us, but they aren't. And that can come as such a shock when you first accept the Lord into your life. Because we're so happy to leave all of that filth and all of that life and all that sin and all the memories of it and all the destructiveness and in, in, in the darkness of it and the shame of it to leave it for a holy life and a godly life. And we just assume everybody's going to be happy for us, but then they aren't happy over it. And I remember when I first got saved, I remember the workplace where I worked certainly changed relationships very, very quickly. I don't know who I told I was a Christian. The man, a word was out fast. Kyle got religion. Go to church now. He's crazy talking about Jesus and all this kind of thing. And some of them just say, well, we've seen this a hundred times before. He'll be back in our fold in six weeks. You just wait and see. It's just a phase. Well... It's like a 35-year phase at the moment. And it wasn't everyone. But it was funny the distancing that happened immediately. The relationships got strained. I didn't do it. People weren't comfortable with me. And I understood it. Because they had a relationship with the old me. And if I had been the new me the whole time... They would have never developed a relationship with me. So they didn't change. I'm the one that changed, but it was a good sign of what happened in, in my life. 
And so these relationships start to get strained and everything is backwards and I'm having the time of my life. I can't believe it. I'm forgiven. I go to church and I'm weeping through every service. This is the greatest thing that has ever happened to me. And yet there's this other thing happening on a relationship level with family and friends. And it was so good in those days, of course, to belong to a church. And then in that church, I remember when the pastor taught, on First Peter, and he talked this very verse about the whole thing of thinking it's strange, and then all of a sudden it put it into perspective for me. My expectations were completely wrong here in all of this. This is going to happen. Not with everybody, but with a lot of it, a lot of people. And, and sometimes this kind of rejection and persecution, slander and all that kind of stuff that goes on, the Bible tells us sometimes that happens just because our changed life now brings conviction to other people. Because our life so dramatically changes. It's an evidence that our old partners in crime and sin could be changed just as easily in an instant if they wanted to. But that because they continued to live the life that they lived, that that was their own decision. But it wasn't because there wasn't an option on the table that God had given to all of mankind. And so our lives then make them personally responsible for the life that they continue to live. And that makes people uncomfortable sometimes. And then the one thing that people don't want to be in this culture that certainly isn't nurtured in the culture is personal responsibility for our decision making. To live the Christian life in this fallen world means, Peter says, that we must not be stumbled by the discomfort that our new life produces in others or by the fact that evil might be spoken of us. And but to realize that it only means that they recognize that a very real and dramatic change has occurred in our lives, which is a good thing. Don't you change. Wait for them to change. Wait for them to come your way. Don't worry about what they think about you. They've got it backwards. In heaven's perspective, you're not the strange one. They're the strange one. And, and so you're normal as far as how heaven looks at things. Wait for them to come into the new normal as well. I close with this number five in verses five and six. Peter tells us that we don't need uh, that we are not to worry about their judgment of us, that we're to entrust all judgment or any kind of slander or persecution or words that might be said against us to entrust all of that to the Lord. One day, Peter said, they're going to have to give an account to God for their treatment of you and not just you, but of Christ in you. And on that day, you will be very, very happy that you didn't return to your former life in order to please them or to silence them or to gain their acceptance. In verse 6, we are assured that even if the persecution of the ungodly results in the physical death of a Christian, that that, that death will not have the final say but merely usher us into the glory of heaven. So when Peter says, and I know some of you are going like, okay, do I, am I supposed to care about this or not? Yeah, you should. It's a, it's a funny verse, kind of a technical verse and an odd verse. A lot of people read verse 6 and they think, hey, wait a second, do we get a second chance to get saved after this life? Or what, what's it saying here? That's not what it's saying here. 
For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who were dead. That refers to those who had heard the gospel while they were alive, but who had been martyred for their faith prior to the writing of Peter's epistle. I think Bill McDonald captures it perfectly. Let me read you a sentence or two of his explanation. He said, we understand this verse to refer to people to whom the gospel was preached while they were still alive on the earth and who believed in the Lord. Because of their valiant stand for truth, they suffered at the hands of wicked men and in some cases were martyred. These believers, though judged or condemned according to men in the flesh, were vindicated by God. They are now enjoying eternal life with him. They are not dead. They were not dead when the gospel was preached to them, but they are dead now as far as their bodies are concerned. Though men, uh, though men thought them mad, God honored them and their spirits are now in heaven. And so for those of you who like to deal with some of the more technical aspects of a passage, that's a great explanation for that. So again, here we Peter instructs us on how to successfully navigate persecution when it comes into our life as a Christian from the most uh, hurtful and the most uh, heartbreaking source of all. And that is those that we consider to be our uh, best friends in life and friends for life and from family members. And he tells us again as a recap, first, we are to have the same mind towards suffering that Jesus had as a way of navigating it. Second, we are to remind ourselves that such persecution is a good sign spiritually. Third, enough. Peter says that we have spent enough of our past lifetime committed to sin. No going back is not an option. That's not the way to solve the problem. And fourth, we must be willing to be considered strange by others for living a wholly changed life. Don't worry about what they think about you. They're the ones that have got it backwards. And then fifth, don't worry about other people's judgment of you. You're on the right side of God and they aren't. Don't join them. Wait till they come to where you are, and that is to put their faith in Christ. If you sit here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, you have never trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you need to do that. And that's God's offer to you today. The privilege of being able to leave the darkness of verse 3 and that sin and a lot of other sin that could be heaped upon that verse, it's just priming the pump. To be able to leave that and to enter into a holy life, a life that looks like Christ. And, but, it, but heading into it, the realization that it may cost you some very significant relationships in your life. But God calls you to do it anyway. Think about the word holy. Holy is not a, a bad word. It's a fabulous word. Holiness is a privilege. And I know some people cannot be a Christian yet and sit in a room like this. And holiness is not a, a beautiful word to them yet. There's nothing I can do about that. That's what God has to deal with in a person's life. But I know there's a whole other group of people that have lived 
in verse 3 from their childhood. And they sit in rooms like this and will all over the whole wide world today. And they will recognize in that word enough, the word enough is, explodes in their heart. They've had enough. And they wonder, is there any other option to the world that everyone around me lives? All my family lives. All my friends live. The whole apartment complex lives. The whole neighborhood lives. Is this what I'm going to do? At 22 years of age, until I die at the age of 77, to go further and further into bondage to this junk? Is that what my future is? And then that person hears about the possibility of a holy life. And the holy, word holy isn't a dirty word to that kind of person. And it's not just a word. It's a real life that God has waiting for every single human being that will put their trust in His Son. He will impart the Holy Spirit into your life and then make the most amazing and beautiful changes in your life as He prepares you for heaven. And as he nurtures you in a relationship with the true and the living God, there is a choice in this world. There is a holy life that God offers. And there's going to be men and women up in front of the pastors as well after the service. And I'd love to pray with you to enter into that life. Praise the Lord for salvation, for forgiveness, for holiness. For a second chance. Wonderful things that God offers to us. Knowing that each and every one of us needs that offer. Take advantage and receive that offer from God today. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, again this morning, we thank you for the, the detail of your word, the nuance of it, the little specifics that you know we're going to face as your children that can bring great confusion and heartbreak into our lives when we experience them, and then to give us instruction that is important and priceless and life-saving in some situations. And we thank you, Lord, for this instruction of your word this morning. May it be a blessing, Lord, and a great protection for every single one of your children in this room that is facing this very circumstance in their life today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.